to Philippians chapter 1. You'll remember last week we began um, looking at uh, what it means to have confidence in Christ, how the Apostle Paul had confidence in Christ. You have sermon notes on the back of your bulletin. Last week we looked at at, um, point 1, confidence in Christ when facing trouble from verses 12 through 14. This week we'll look, Lord willing, at points 2 and 3. But I will begin reading uh, with verse 12 uh, to help uh, you remember uh, what we looked at last week. Before I begin, I wanted to acknowledge uh, that um, Charles Colson uh, died and went to be with the Lord. Um, uh, a, a very important um, saint here in, in America. Um, uh, used in in a powerful way in the prison ministries and spreading the faith. Uh, so um, I saw Shane Morris up in the balcony and uh, wanted to to tell him that we we uh, stand with with him and uh, with with that whole ministry. Shane uh, worked for for Charles Colson, so he will be greatly missed. Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the Word of God without fear. Indeed, some preach Christ out of, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain." Let's pray. Almighty God, as we have read Your Word, I pray that You would help us to have a confidence in Christ that would enable us to rejoice in the face of opposition, to rejoice in the face of death, to count our lives as nothing, if only that we might honor Christ We ask in His name. Amen. I served as an associate pastor in a couple of different churches before I came to Brandon. And during that time, I served under a few different pastors. One of the pastors, while I was serving under him as an associate, um, he melted down. Really, there's no other way to, to put it. 
Um, he was the senior pastor and his meltdown was so complete that although we had 17 elders uh, in our church who had served as elders uh, previously, um, there were only three that were willing to serve with him. And uh, at the end of a year, two of them said no more and uh, dropped off. And so we were a church of over 300 members, but we were in danger of reverting back to being in a, a mission church because we didn't have enough elders willing to serve on the session. Um, while the three elders were serving, they decided to, be, to begin cutting back the pastor's responsibilities. And so they cut his preaching load in half and gave to me, the associate, half the preaching load of the senior pastor. It put me in a very difficult position. I can understand why the elders were frustrated. In fact, I was frustrated by the, uh, with the pastor's ministry. But I told the elders I could not and I would not um, step in to take any of the pastor's responsibilities. My position was that the elders who were refusing to step in and shepherd this pastor uh, were sidestepping their responsibility by refusing uh, to serve, and they were pushing off that responsibility onto me. Um, it was very difficult for me to refuse to take uh, half the preaching load and these other responsibilities that uh, these that the elders were wanting to place upon me because I was hungry to preach. I got to preach at that point in my my career maybe six or seven times a year. Um, and uh, I also found myself when I when I had an opportunity to preach when the the pastor was the senior pastor was melting down I, I found in myself this desire to work extra hard on my preaching and to accentuate the differences between myself and the senior pastor and it felt good to have people try and elevate my ministry. But I recognized that what was happening in my own life, or rather in my own heart, was selfish ambition. And for me to try and outshine the senior pastor was going to cause trouble for him and was going to cause dishonor to come to the name of Christ. So what I did, and my, my wife can testify to this, is I put together my um, resume rapidly when I realized how quickly things were going down and I, and I saw what was going on in my own heart. And I sent out my resume to other churches trying to just get out of his way because I knew that if I stayed in his way with that, uh, that I would uh, sin myself. And um, basically I also recommitted uh, myself to helping the senior pastor, whatever the uh, the cost to me, and so I would talk to him about things that uh, that other people weren't saying, and and would pray for him. And um, he got angry at me. <laughs> the elders got angry at me for not helping them with the things that they wanted me to help uh, with, and and uh, and it ended up being a very difficult time. Uh, this was a very it was over a year process 
Um, I tell you this story because I perfectly understand what Paul is describing in verses 15 through 18. I also understand how tempting it was for people to oppose Paul because of their own selfish ambition. Look at verses 15 through 18. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here. And where is here? Well, he's in prison. So he's put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So remember what's happening to remind you of, of last week. Paul was in prison uh, in the city of Rome. But God is working. God is using Paul even though he's in prison. In fact, the palace guards that are chained to him are coming to Christ as Paul is receiving visitors and, and talking about the Gospel and praying for the Gospel and writing these letters that we now read um, like Philippians. Uh, and these, these, these guards um, began coming to Christ. The guards that were guarding Him were also guards guarding Caesar. And so, through uh, these guards coming to Christ, then these guards began evangelizing the other guards. And then, as I pointed out, uh, and as Paul points out at the end of Philippians, even some of Caesar's own household become Christians. As Paul is languishing away in prison, God is using him to reach the very pinnacle of power in the then known world. And not only that, the church is coming to the Apostle Paul and he's teaching the elders. He's teaching the, uh, the deacons. He's teaching uh, the, the people in the congregation as they come and visit him while he's on house arrest. And so he's essentially pastoring the church. And as a result, the Christians become bold in proclaiming Christ. He says, and look at verse 14, and most of the brothers having having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the Word without fear. And so this is a good thing. The Gospel is spreading throughout Rome. But something not so good begins to happen as well within the church. It becomes a badge of honor to preach the Gospel. And as, the, um, as, as some of the Christians began preaching the Gospel, or rather, as many of the Christians began preaching the Gospel, those who were going out to preach began competing with each other, began having a rivalry with each other. Who's going to be recognized as the better preacher? And uh, the better preachers then began to rise up in leadership in the church. And they began to think that the church belonged to them. And you will remember from last week, Paul was, was basically pastoring the church even though he was in prison. And so these preachers, with their elevated status, began making trouble for Paul. But they were making trouble for him uh, so that they would weaken his leadership uh, and, and thus weaken his standing 
uh, with the entire church and enable themselves to be elevated in in um, in leadership. So they were making trouble for Paul. You know, these sorts of power struggles are not uncommon. They go on in churches all the time. What's happening to Paul is not unique. It also happens not only in churches, but in the workplace, um, in schools. For those of you students who are here, it even happens in the home. Selfish ambition is an ever-lurking danger. We think that we're smarter than someone else. We think that we can do something better than someone else. We daydream of what we would do if we were only given a chance to do what this other incompetent person is doing. And then we begin to plot secretly how we might undermine them. Certainly we would never say a good word about them, for that would cause their standing to be elevated in someone else's eyes. I would venture to say that all, or at least most, of us in this room have had similar ambitious thoughts. How would you go about avoiding this this temptation, this ever-lurking danger of selfish ambition? I think the best way to avoid this temptation is to glorify Christ in all you do. Seek to make that your goal. I learned this goal when I was, or uh, I learned this principle shortly after I became a Christian while I was still at Georgia Southern College. After I became a Christian, I would go to class. I remember sitting in biology class, and there were maybe 200 people in this class. It was a big lecture hall. I didn't, I didn't pay attention to the teacher at all. I would sit there and I would read my Bible uh, in biology class. I would read my Bible in English class. I would read my Bible in computer class. Um, and uh, sad to say, my GPA in college dropped to 1.7 uh, after my freshman year. But then I met the man that I've told you about who began discipling me. And he taught me this principle of glorifying God in everything. He taught me 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, whether you are eating or drinking or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He made me memorize that verse. It's a good verse to memorize. I commend it to you. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And what, what he taught me, what, what the man who discipled me taught me was that my job as a college student was to glorify God in my studies. And here's the way he put it. And he would say it all the time. Make a 4-0 for the Lord. Don't make a 4-0 for yourself. Don't make a 4-0 for your parents. Don't make a 4-0 for your future advancement, employment advancement. Make a 4-0 for the Lord. And so I no longer thought of education as a means to simply getting ahead in life. Rather, my studies became an end in, in themselves. It became an opportunity to glorify God. To slack off in my studies was to sin against God. Even though 
It might have been a subject that I really didn't care about, I wasn't particularly good in, uh, or I didn't think would benefit me very much. I ended up graduating from Covenant College with academic honors. I ended up graduating from Westminster Theological Seminary with academic honors. It was this principle that uh, pushed me forward. And this principle will help you recognize and resist doing things from a motive of selfish ambition. Glorifying God as your root desire will motivate you to excel, but you won't be able to tear someone else uh, down in order to push yourself forward. This became for me a life-changing principle. And it's not optional. This is a command from the Apostle Paul. He's not saying, here's a suggestion for Christians. He is saying, this is a command. Whatever you do, whatever I do, whether we're eating or drinking, in other words, the menial, do it all for the glory of God. You're not not glorifying God simply on one hour on Sunday mornings. You're call, your task, the command that God has given you is to obey Him whether you are eating, whether you are drinking, whether you are sleeping, whether you are working, whether you are recreating. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Is this your desire I believe it will be if you're a Christian. Not only do most people struggle with selfish ambition, or rather I should put it a little differently, because most people struggle with selfish ambition, we've also been the victims of selfish ambition. Uh, We've had people try and tear us down to use us as a stepping stone to cause themselves to step higher. People like feeling good about themselves. And one of the strategies that they use to feel good about themselves is knocking other people down. Uh, And then they look and see how tall they're standing and they feel pretty good about themselves. How should we deal with this when this happens to us? When we're the victims of the selfish ambition? Well, look what Paul did. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, "...the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I I rejoice." In other words, these people were, because of their selfish ambition, because of their envy, they were causing him they they were opposing him what does paul do he rejoices those people causing him trouble were not his responsibility he trusted christ and he knew what that christ knew what he was doing when he allowed these people to bring him opposition and so because he trusted in christ he rejoiced in Christ. He was confident in Christ in spite of the opposition. He was confident in Christ in the face of the opposition. 
These are not unbelievers preaching the Gospel. These are not unbelievers who are opposing Him. These are not uh, the legalists, the Jewish uh, legal, legalists um, preaching the Gospel. These are believers that are preaching Christ but have been led away by selfish, by their own selfish ambition. We can have this kind of confident trust in Christ as we live here in this world that is full of opposition, full of people who are driven by, um, by selfish ambition. If we entrust ourselves to Christ and live our lives to glorify Him, then we can be bold in our outlook. It would have been tempting for Paul to see these people opposing him and for him to shrink back or for him to, to grow frustrated. Instead, he rejoiced regardless of where you are, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your difficulties, regardless of any opposition in your life. You can know Christ loves me. Christ is taking care of me. Christ is using me for His purposes. Why should fears and opposition, mistreatment, or difficulties rob me of my joy in Jesus Christ? Paul would not let that happen because his confidence was placed in Christ. I know for a fact that there are some of you here who have recently been mistreated because you've told me about some of this mistreatment. And I've spoken with you about that. And I want to say to you, don't let yourself be distracted. Don't let yourself become discouraged. Let nothing steal your joy in Christ. And then in verses 19-21, through 21, Paul left us in on a couple of secrets that enabled him to rejoice in all circumstances. The first secret we've already alluded to here in the service, um, and that is Paul knows that Jesus will help him. Specifically, he knows that Jesus will use the Holy Spirit to deliver him from all opposition. Jesus is a conquering king. He will never let the opposition win. He'll let his opposition have small victories, but he does that in order that he will ultimately use their small victories against them to make their defeat even more devastating. So look at verses 19 through 21. Uh, Paul says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. I love that note of confidence. This will turn out for my deliverance. Notice here that he doesn't know what this deliverance will look like. He simply knows that it will turn out for his deliverance and that Jesus will use the prayers of the saints as a weapon to gain the victory. Please, 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 never underestimate the power of your prayers. Paul says here, I know through your prayers and through the help given by the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. When you pray, 
you are praying to an all-powerful Savior who has bid you come, who has bid you be bold and confident in making your request before His throne of grace. The second secret that enabled Paul to rejoice in all circumstances was his confidence in Christ in the face of certain death. I'm not going to deal with this at, at length this morning because we're going to deal with this not next Sunday, I won't be here, but I'm going to devote two sermons to um, verse 21. The first sermon will be uh, to live as Christ. The second sermon will be to die as gain. So we'll look at this in, in greater detail. But I do want to say that all of us um, are in the same situation as Paul. Paul says in verse 20, "...as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and and to die is gain." The Apostle Paul didn't know whether he was going to live or die um, when he was finally sentenced, when he got to appear before Caesar. History tells us that Paul was uh, beheaded by Caesar Nero. And so he indeed did die. Um, But when he wrote, wrote this, he was uncertain as to when that time would be. Yet he was certain that he was going to die just as all of us in this room face that same certainty. All of us are facing death. It is very likely that some in this room will be dead within the next couple of years. Others only have a decade left to live here on this earth, while others have 80 years or more. Our time of death is not known to us, But every one of us can know that we will certainly face death. So let's be eager to learn from Paul how to have confidence in the face of certain death. We can have this confidence. Here in verse 20, he tells us how to have it. He says, It is his eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, Look, I can have confidence today, even though I am facing difficulties, even though I am facing opposition, because I know that ultimately I will be delivered in death if Christ doesn't deliver me first during this life. In fact, there was some, um, there, there is uh, a, a lot of theories that Paul was delivered from, from uh, jail and that he made his way over to Spain, as was his plan, came back to Rome and was rearrested. But um, whether he was let out of, of jail or not is, is impossible to know for certain. But we do know that he is now no longer living in the face of opposition. For he was delivered from his chains through the blessing of death. And the Apostle Paul said, Look, I am going to live my life, whether by life 
or by death, I'm going to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was going through that difficult trial in, um, in, that, in my previous church, I remember when it was over, my wife said, it's glad to have, I'm glad to have you back. And it, it was an ordeal. And I, in, in some ways, I think, I wasted a year of my life. But then it wasn't wasted. Because I honored Christ through it. Not only did I honor Christ through it, I also... Um, the, the church ended up being blessed through that, uh, that whole experience in the long run. How can you have confidence when you're facing death? Well, first of all, I mean, just I got a little ahead of myself. I want to say, first of all, you can have confidence here in this life that as long as you are living for Christ, that the opposition that you face will not be prolonged for eternity, but it will end. And also you can have confidence if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus came and died on the cross, when He was stretched out on that awful wood with His hands being nailed to that cross, with His feet being nailed to the cross, with wearing a crown of thorns with blood dripping down His head, with Him being mocked while He was there, God the Father poured out all the wrath that we deserved to have poured out against us. On that cross, Jesus Christ took my sins. On that cross, Jesus paid for my sins. On that cross, when Jesus said, It is finished, it meant that my sins were paid for. Now all I do is trust in Him. And here's your confidence. God is a just God. He does not believe in double jeopardy. Or rather, He will not let double jeopardy attach. If Jesus has paid for your sins, and you trust Him for that, then you can be confident. You can know for certain that there will be no sin left to be charged against you. That's why Jesus is our Savior. That's why we flee to Him. That's why we talk about Him so much. He died for us. He paid the penalty. He is our confidence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we live here in a world that has so much that would rock our confidence. In fact, it seems as if many times during the week our confidence is shaken, our eyes are taken off of Jesus, our, um, our trust wanes, and uh, we falter in our walk with Christ. God, I pray that You would help us to have a faith like Paul's, a faith that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, a faith that helps to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the opposition, regardless of the difficulties, regardless even of our own sinful hearts. He died for us. In Him, we live. 
And we thank You for that. Amen.